0: Good morning. Thank you for the reciprocity. It's good to see you guys. Um, Happy Advent 1. It's good to have you with us. And happy Family Sunday. We have a bunch of kids with us who are usually in Sunday school this morning. And so it is a delight to have you with us this morning. And kids, I want to ask you a specific question. When you and your parents are driving somewhere and they don't you know, maybe it's a new place for them, and they don't know where to go yet. What do they use to tell them where to go? GPS. GPS. Man, kids said GPS at the first service, too. I thought they'd just say phone. Yes, a GPS, Global Positioning System. Anywhere that you are in the world, this can let you know where you are and where you need to go and how to get there. If you get off on the wrong path, it will lovingly reroute you onto a new path. Now, when I was a kid, my dad and I used to make road trips uh, to various places, oftentimes between New Jersey and Texas. We lived in New Jersey, much of my family was still in Texas. And I used an antiquated device called a map. Okay, this was a big piece of paper with millions of lines on it. You would fold it about 50 times in a row. Uh, so that you could fit it inside your pocket. And when I opened this map, it looked like a bunch of mumbo-jumbo to me, a bunch of spaghetti on a page. But over these long car rides, I began to get curious and my dad would teach me how to read a map to the point to where I could kind of look at my surroundings, look at some of the road signs that were passing, look down on the map and figure out basically where I was and how to get to where we needed to go. I was so comforted by having a map. I had a sense of bearing on reality. Now, what do you think would happen, kids, if your parents were in the middle of a road trip and they lost their GPS device? Yeah, hand. Yep. Oh. You could use a map. Thank you. That is a great idea. Yes. What would happen? You would, get, you would get lost. You would look for some other way to figure out where you were looking to go. You would get lost. You would lose your bearings on reality. We had a kid in the first service who went into a long story. It sounds like it happened before. It's a little contentious at times. Um, if you get lost, you need to find some way to understand your bearing on reality. You actually need a map. Thank you for that. Now kids, I bet you have seen your mom or dad or brother or sister at times spending time on their own doing something that they call praying. Now maybe it seemed a little bit difficult to understand what exactly is going on there, and that's okay actually because prayer is a little bit complex. We grown-ups are still figuring out exactly what it means to pray. But I'll tell you what, when your parents are praying, it's like they're reading a map or using a GPS. Not really for directions to get you from your house to your new friend's house, but they're praying to try to figure out what to do, where to go, who to be. And it can be really hard to know sometimes. But this is what Jesus promises us. He says that if you follow him, the Holy Spirit will guide us and... We just have to want to listen, to ask questions, to listen again, to ask more questions, and to listen again, to have a conversation. That's called prayer. And you know what? You can do that. It may feel a little bit funny at first, because it's not exactly like having a conversation with mom or dad, but it might take a little while because God is trying to teach you how to read a new kind of map takes a little while to learn that so ask your parents what is it like to pray because honestly god is the best gps system that you will ever know he knows the way every time can i give you one of my favorite prayers the prayer that i say the most often is this jesus help Pray that prayer anytime that you feel like you need help because he loves you and he always wants to answer you. Can you say it again with me? Jesus, help. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you that you long to help, that you love us. And so would you be very present with us this morning? Teach us how to pray, how to talk with you, and how to listen. Would you bless our kids who are in here with us? Would you bless our kids who are in the nursery behind me here? Lord, fill them afresh with your spirit in this uncertain world. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all your people's hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I don't know if you know this, but there exists in the world a fish that has a light bulb attached to its face. I don't remember much about the first time I learned about the anglerfish, but I do remember my science teacher was a little bit too excited to tell us about it, which led me to believe they made the entire thing up. (laughs) Upon realizing that in fact there are over 200 different species of anglerfish, all with multiple layers of jagged teeth, one or more dangling light bulbs to lure its prayer Uh, its it's prey towards it in the pitch black of 3,000 feet below the surface of the ocean, a deep terror set into my soul about the ocean. There is so much we don't know about this body that covers two-thirds of our world, and most of what we do know still terrifies me. Now, we might think we're so advanced from ancient understandings of the world, and in many ways, We know so much more uh, than those who came before us. But the ocean, interestingly, still lingers as a touchpoint between us. In the beginning, if you'll remember, the earth was formless and void, and at the start of all creation, we see the Spirit hovering over the waters. So in the imagination of the writers of Genesis, this was the first showdown between light and dark, good and bad, order versus disorder. Dark waters were written into the story because the waters in an ancient mindset represented terror, darkness, the unknown, and chaos itself. Now in our gospel reading this morning, we see a figure who enters into and slices through the chaos of the world, yet today we are still left to frustratingly grapple with so much chaos around us. Why, when we look around, do we see so much chaos We don't have to go to the depths of the ocean to discover chaos. It's all around us. It's near to us. Many many times it's within us. Just this week, we've experienced a truck plowing into a crowd, injuring dozens of folks, killing six. Just this week, we learned about a new strand of the coronavirus. Just this week, I got my monthly issue of The Atlantic, and the cover article is literally called The Bad Guys Are Winning. But the chaos is not just out there, it's in here as well. The disorientation of suffering, the pain of broken relationships, the judgment of a spurned heart that we can't seem to close the door on. Sometimes the chaos comes in part due to our own choices. Sometimes it just seems to indiscriminately come our way. The world is in chaos. We participate in that chaos. And this is a reality that the Christian worldview is not afraid to stare directly in the face and grapple with. And so this morning is the beginning of Advent. If you've listened to Hannah's uh, video introduction that came out in our email this week, you'll know that Advent always starts in the dark. This is why we have one solitary lit candle on our wreath this morning. Our songs take a decidedly minor key, as well as our readings and our prayers. The Christian liturgical calendar invites us to ponder our need for a rescuer amidst a chaos world and cry out, why? Why is there so much pain and suffering and marginalizing? Why are relationships so hard? Why is my heart so prone to wonder? So this morning, in contrast to the month-long pre-Christmas tide that the world outside is creating, we will dive into apocalyptic events, a mysterious figure called the Son of Man, a world in chaos, and a need for a Savior. And along the way, we will learn how to reconcile the end of our stories with our present chaos, Christian faith, and a suffering world. And we'll learn what to do with our cries amidst the chaos. So let's begin by looking at the central figure of the day. This is in our gospel reading, verse 27. It says, the Son of Man is coming in a cloud with power and great glory. We have to grapple with this Son of Man. Who is the Son of Man? I'll go ahead and spoil the ending for you a little bit. On one level, it's Jesus. Of course it's Jesus. The Sunday school answer pays off. But how do we know it's Jesus? If we look through the whole of the Gospel of Mark, we see this phrase, the Son of Man, used 25 times And every time, it's Jesus referring to himself. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath, is betrayed with a kiss, can forgive sins, has nowhere to lay his head, and so on and so forth. This was Jesus' preferred self-designation. But why? Why this phrase? What's the intentionality behind this phrase? The phrase, the Son of Man, refers to a central figure in Jewish apocalyptic Literature. Now, we didn't have anybody run out screaming to the exits upon the use of the word apocalyptic, so bear with me this morning. We'll uncover it a little bit, but we get hints as we look at our Luke passage this morning at why this is the case. Now, let's be honest. As we were reading our gospel passage this morning, it sounds a little crazy. Signs in the sun, moon, and stars, anxiety around the world because of choppy ocean waters, a guy riding in on a cloud. It all sounds pretty epic, but it doesn't quite sound like reality as we know it. Folks have wrestled over the centuries to know what to do with this kind of writing. But all over history, there has been a certain kind of consensus that these are, in fact, apocalyptic images, a specific kind of experience and a specific kind of literature that we need to be sensitive to in our reading of the Bible. When Jesus speaks about the sun, moon, and stars having signs, Literally, Matthew's parallel, being shaken, these represent the great kingdoms of the earth on one level, but on another level, they represent the very standards by which one got a handle on reality. You would look at the sun, the moon, and the stars to chart your course, to know where you were, and to know which direction you needed to go. Jesus promises that that these things will be shaken, upended, so of course it's a chaotic scene, These particular kinds of scenes are apocalyptic scenes. Now, if you googled apocalypse these days, which is a very dangerous thing to do, you would find millions of explanations of the end of the world, when, how, for whom Jesus or somebody else is returning to destroy the world. In other words, in many parts of Christendom, though strangely the vast majority of which is here in America, the apocalypse has become shorthand for the end of the world. But if we compare that understanding of apocalypse to our passage this morning, we're on pretty shaky ground. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Last I checked, the world did not end in the first century. We can't quite say that Jesus was true in all things, he just had his timing wrong. So what's going on here? Our English word apocalypse is from the Greek word ap- apocalypsis. I had to say that a whole bunch of times to get it right. Apokalypsis. This literally means the unveiling of the curtain, a rolling back of the curtain. And this is why this word, when it was translated into Latin, was translated revelatio, the veila, the veil, literally being pulled back. This is where we get our word revelation from. So something is being revealed, but what? Other apocalyptic moments that we see in the Bible, of course, the book of Revelation uh, at the end of our Bible, other apocalyptic moments, Ezekiel's dry bones, it's kind of a strange scene, we have to understand what's going on there, as well as Daniel chapter 7, which is a story about the Son of Man coming in to defeat beasts rising out of a chaotic ocean, There are similar themes here, for sure. The similarity we see in all of these is not that they describe the end of the world, though some point towards it. The common theme is that they are all experiences of God peeling back the curtain of this world as we understand it and giving us a God's eye perspective of a current or future event. When you were a child... And on a dark and stormy night, an overgrown branch of an oak tree outside your room kept dancing up and down, tapping your window every now and then. I know you assumed it was Freddy Krueger trying to get into your room. And maybe finally you mustered up up enough courage to go and yank back the curtain before you dove back under your blankets again. You, my friend, in this moment, had something like a revelatory experience unveiling the truer nature of that gnarly oak tree that was outside of your room, which you could only see in part through the veil, but then you peeled it back. The Son of Man does just this in our passage this morning, but when he does it, it's more than a this and that side of your bedroom kind of revealing. He unveils for us this side and that side of a spiritual divide, one that was always intended to be healed He gives us a God's eye perspective, therefore, which does not only see the chaos of this world, though it does see that, this chaos that we're embroiled in, which we all too often participate in creating, an apocalyptic God's eye perspective reveals the spiritual reality behind our world. In other apocalyptic moments throughout the Bible, we see big spiritual throw-down battles, And in our passage this morning, as Jesus peels back the curtain, we see him coming to do battle again against darkness. Given the scary images from this morning, we might be tempted to think that he has come to fight the world. And I think this is where we have unhitched a little bit with our understanding of the apocalypse. But in reality, he has come to fight desperately for the world because we have become so cozy with broken norms And it needs upending. This is the reality that we see when we peek behind the veil. Now, except for a couple of chapters in Genesis, the world has always known a level of chaos. But this morning's Revelatio told Jesus' original listeners to expect chaos to increase in their lifetime. Why increase? Because in this apocalyptic scene, Jesus was pointing forward to and pulling back the curtain on the reality of the cross. At the cross, when Jesus gave up his life, the light of the sun faded, even though it was the middle of the day. The temple curtain tore in two. In Matthew, it says the earth shook, rocks were torn in two, and graves were opened. What's going on here? With an apocalyptic view of the cross we get a glimpse behind the curtain. The chaos at that time that they were experiencing and our chaos today that we experience comes from a Savior, one like a son of man, who fought and won the major victory against the kingdom of darkness. He is not battling against the world, but he is battling for the world, against the kingdom of darkness. He is battling For the kingdom of God and its loving reign in our lives, and against the kingdom of indiscriminate attempts to steal away good, beauty, and joy, flourishing of life, which is what God always longs for us. This is what Jesus points to as the great battle, this apocalyptic scene from our passage. And it took place 2,000 years ago where, as our reading says, our redemption had drawn near. The kingdom of God became near. Here's how Bishop Robert Barron, he's a Catholic bishop of Los Angeles, here's how he describes it. He says, It was the dying and rising of Jesus that pulled back the veil to reveal the deepest truths of things, that God's love is more powerful than death and more powerful than those institutions that rely on fear and death. Death itself has been broken, and so the question is, will we join the Son of Man, Jesus, as he continues to roll back death and darkness in this world? Because until he comes again, that victory, that life is sown back into this world through us, through his followers. Now we are in a time, as Seth preached about two weeks ago, that theologians call the already not yet. I won't rehash all of it, but the best illustration I've found for it is the end of the Second World War. On June 6th, 1944, thousands of soldiers stormed the beaches of Normandy to make the decisive blow that effectively ended the war against the Nazis. D-Day. But it was almost a year later, May 8th, 1945, that the victory was fully realized and the Germans fully surrendered. V.E. Day, Victory in Europe Day. There's a great deal of chaos in that intervening 11 months, a great deal of mopping up of this defeated army in the between time, a great deal of loss and chaos, but the fate of the war was no longer in doubt after D-Day. And so it is now. Jesus was victorious over darkness on the cross, and behind the curtain, the sun, moon, and stars have been shaken. The very thing that everyone counted on as dependable realities to chart life by. But somebody rose from the grave, which shook the heavens and the earth. It upended order as they knew it. And it upends order as we know it, as we tend to try to protect a false order. Now, the world as it always should have been is taking root once again. The kingdom of darkness is spiteful at this defeat. This is the fate that has been revealed for us. The world has been won back by the Son of Man for good, order, and love, for the God who created it and for his beloved, us, if we would only receive it. No longer can we be content settling for lifeless but controlled chaos. It's been shown to us that we cannot domesticate darkness. It must be upended, defeated, and it has been. And so we must learn to chart a new course, not by the normal signs, not by the sun, moon, and the stars, not by the world's norms, but by the light of the Holy Spirit who catches us up in this ongoing work of the Son of Man, this great mopping up of chaos and darkness. This is the reality of the between time, between the victory of the cross and its full fruition when Jesus sets all things right again. This is where we find ourselves. And the Spirit of God will lead us into a reality, a posture that does not make sense to the world, leading us into all humility instead of pridefulness, into choosing the lowest seat, into prudence instead of boastfulness, into generosity instead of self-preservation. And myriad, the myriad ways that the kingdom of God just doesn't make sense to the kingdom of darkness. Just like the lingering chaos that the Nazis caused at the end of the, the Second World War, there is still real loss and chaos that we experience in the in-between. This is why in a world that Jesus has already won back, we still experience chaos and darkness. So what do we do when we are struck head-on with the suffering of the world, with our own pain, with the chaos created by a spiteful enemy? I'll submit to you that we need to relearn how to lament. This brings us right back into the beginning of the Christian calendar, right back into Advent, where we cry, O come, O come, Emmanuel! Come, Lord Jesus! Because we see the darkness that still lingers in contrast with the God who has defeated it. How do we hold these two things together in faith? So often we feel like our duty as a follower of Jesus might be to minimize suffering, whether it's our own or the world's suffering, because we're afraid that somehow it tarnishes the truth that Jesus has actually defeated darkness. Or maybe sometimes we feel like we have to minimize our own faith in the face of such overwhelming suffering in the world. Can faith in a victorious Jesus exist alongside the suffering of the world? This is often an uncomfortable question, but only because we are a culture that I believe has forgotten how to lament. This is why these penitential seasons of Advent and Lent can oftentimes feel so especially life-giving. Pastor Mark Vrogop, author of a book called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament, he describes lament for us this way. Every lament is a prayer, a statement of faith. Lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. It stands in the gap between pain and promise. No one seeks out the pain that leads to lament, but when life falls apart, this minor key song is life-giving. As we peek behind the curtain, let us learn afresh how to lament. To follow Jesus has never been a promise to avoid suffering. Usually it's quite the opposite. When we start going against the grain of life as usual, we should expect to experience the pushback of the kingdom of darkness. As Jesus said just before our passage this morning, he says, you will be hated for my name's sake. He doesn't ask us to pretend like the pain and suffering we experience is minimal or to put on a happy face. We're invited to pray honest prayers of lament along with about a third of the Psalms. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my own soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is the victorious Son of Man who has defeated darkness. Let us express our faith in him by turning to him in the chaos, bringing our complaints to him and persistently inviting him to act to extend the victory of his kingdom over one or another broken area of life. He longs to do just that. As we do this, we need to be willing to be moved by the Holy Spirit into those broken areas ourselves. And don't be afraid of doing this over and over again. Being persistent in our complaints to the Lord about the brokenness of the world is not a faithless act. It's faithful the only faithless act is to give him the silent treatment. Lament is the minor, minor key song of worship that we are all called to sing as God's people in a hurting world. So this Advent, I invite you to stand in the gap of this world. Connect with the chaos and the victory of Jesus, pulling them together through your laments Draw near to Jesus in the chaos and receive his provision, his guidance, his consolation. Receive from him his love for this world and his love for you. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.